Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are going to be talking about Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. Um, Benedict Anderson, uh, of course, was a political scientist, very famous political scientist. He was born um, somewhere in Southeast Asia. That was like his focus of study. Um, but one of the things that uh, is intriguing about Benedict Anderson is his deconstruction. I don't know that we would call him like a post-structuralist in the vein of like a Foucault or a Said, but his deconstruction of the idea of nationalism. Um, anything you want to add to the really overly brief uh, bio of Benedict Anderson? I really just... No, I think that this yeah. work is in, the, I think it's the same year even as um, Hobsbawm's uh, invention of tradition, which we just did an episode on actually a couple of episodes kind of in that line. So this work is like connected to that in a way of kind of, you know, as that, that work talks about how these traditions that we think, you know, go back to time, like immemorial are usually oftentimes pretty recent and oftentimes serve very specific ideological functions. You know, Benedict Anderson, which we're about to get to, basically does the same thing, but talking about nations and nationalism and the specifics of their origins and so forth. So really like interconnected two works from two different historians that are both basically in the same school. Though Anderson disagrees with Hobsbawm a little bit in terms of yep. the novelty of nationalism. Benedict Anderson argues it's not as novel as a lot of us, and, and Nick and I are guilty of this. We do frame it in more of a 17th, 18th century advent. And then of course, just, just um, um, it grows from there. We're guilty of that. And I don't know that Benedict Anderson went convinced us otherwise, um, mm -hmm. but we do feel compelled to at least kind of talk about what um, his findings reveal. Yeah, he has in here. I think I highlighted it. We might get to it like what he thinks was the first nation. So we'll get to that. Perfect. Well, let's kick this thing off. We are not going through the whole text. It is a lot. So we've uh, uh, cherry picked our favorite parts. We always kind of uh, criticize others for cherry, cherry picking different parts of documents, but we're going to go ahead and be guilty of that here. So we're going to kick off with his ideas on the origins of national consciousness. Uh, I think that's a good place to start. Uh, what do you think, Nick? Yep. Okay, let's let's kick this off. I'm going to start with a highlight um, I have of his, it's, and I'm going to read directly from Anderson here in The Origins of National Consciousness. It's how he starts. He says, if the development of print as commodity is the key to the generation of wholly new ideas of simultaneity, still we are simply at the point where communities of the type horizontal secular transverse time become possible. Why within that type did the nation become so popular? The factors involved are obviously complex and various, but a strong case can be made for the primacy of capitalism. I choose this specific quote because it's going to set the stage for everything we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes as we talk about the origins of national uh, consciousness. In Benedict Anderson's purview, he's also kind of looking at that Enlightenment era, mercantilist era as a kicking off point, at least for this part of his conversation. And the keys, he argues, are, of course, capitalism, which this channel is, is, is no stranger to critiquing, but also a new one for us, not necessarily new in critiquing, but um, I guess I don't know how to frame this. He argues that, to be blunt, print media becomes one of the major, major reasons that we see a flourishing of national consciousness. So, of course, the invention of the printing press, which actually took place in Korea, made its way to China, but Europeans like to take credit for its invention in the 1500s by, uh, help me out here, Nick, uh, I'm blanking at this moment in time. Um, somebody, somebody, somebody in the comments is going to leave it for us. Or, or, or we could <laughs> wow. Neither of us can think of that. Yeah. German guy, right? Like Gutenberg. That. Gutenberg. Thank you. Oh my God. Wow. 
He wasn't even German, was he? It doesn't matter. Regardless, let's... <laughs> yeah, I'm a history teacher, right? No. But that's, I'm not big on inventions. Like, it's just not a thing, right? Like, I'm not yeah. big on the material culture. So moving forward, though, he argues that this is one of the major reasons that we have the rise of national consciousness at that time, the time that all the other historians and political scientists and sociologists are arguing in the 16th, 17th, 1800s, we have this birth of nationalism. Even though Anderson somewhat disagrees with it, he argues that it is the advent of this of print media that really leads to um, the flourishing of nationalism. What do you think of that, Nick? Yeah, he says basically it's the sort of relationship and kind of reflexivity between print and capitalism that lead to the birth of nationalism. And he makes a pretty compelling argument, I think, of how he works it all out. So, Well, and, and I think alongside that, one of the things that we always learn about the printing press, and especially when we frame it within the Protestant Reformation, and of course, putting the Bible into vernacular languages and so on and so forth, is it was meant to be kind of like a liberatory exercise. And, and people that are into, of course, the dissemination of information and the free freedom of the production of knowledge would agree with that. But also, here's the thing that we always kind of lose sight of is, is even if this information is present and available to the masses, it's not always that they're going to consume it. They tend to fall back on um, their prior um, reliance upon on those in positions of power, i.e. storytelling classes, to um, interpret it for them. And that's what happens. What ends up happening is not like the liberation of information, as, as many assume it is with the printing press. We would argue it would be a just easier way to mass socialize, mass socialize, if not indoctrinate others into a certain way of thinking, speaking, and acting. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, most people interpret the invention of the printing press with like the freedom of information. Right. And obviously that's not entirely like untrue, but what's often ignored in those conversations is how control of print information and of like essentially mass media at the time, right? Quote, unquote, uh, how it was much easier for states to control that information as a result of the print industry. If they control the industry, then they can control access to information very, very easily. Not coincidentally, it's not um, completely unheard of to make the corollary to any other modern invention of mass communication, right? We could argue mm -hmm. that the internet has so many has so much liberatory potential. We literally have more information at each of our fingertips than ever in human history, and yet most of us are wholly indoctrinated, if not socialized, into like nationalist constructs. Um, yep. It's actually kind of embarrassing that we're this. I easy. mean, not to mention yeah. so many other constructs, right? So anyway, okay, moving forward though, let's get back to Anderson. He goes on to say one of the earliest forms of capitalist enterprise, book publishing, excuse me as I, I catch up here with my, my notes, felt all of capitalism's restless search for markets. So this is that intersection. He is basically saying, and you use that word reflexive, this reflexive relationship between, of course, printing and capitalism. What is that? You want to draw that out? Like he's basically saying that, that books were one of capitalism's first conquests. What, what mm -hmm. does he mean there? Yeah. And then, like you said in that quote, he talks about how, you know, capitalism, the quest for new and essentially never ending markets and how the print industry sort of evolves to seek new markets as a result of he goes in depth about the evolutions of linguistics, of languages and how, you know, people speaking different languages created different markets, individuated mm -hmm. markets for the print mm -hmm. industry because they could print books in different languages. And so it was the same book, but by printing it in different languages, say they print it in two languages, they double their markets. So he says one of the interesting 
capitalist sort of characteristics at the time and its relationship to the book industry was this really uh, fascinating connection with language. And then he connects that into the origins of essentially nations and specifically national consciousness. No, that's perfect. Um, and, and this idea that markets, again, for the traditional capitalists, although I'm assuming we don't have a lot of capitalist listeners uh, at this point in our channel's history, but but the idea is that these markets are somehow um, driven by invisible hands and natural constructs, of course, of the material forces around them. But But what we're seeing here, and the more we dig into this, and we agree with Anderson here, these markets are actually constructed. Right, these markets are actually constructed by the capitalists themselves. It's it's uh, to be blunt, this is marketing one hundred and one. Marketers are developing markets, like so they're inventing things that didn't already exist, inventing wants and needs that didn't already exist, and we can kind of see that here. And I think that's what Anderson is talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, there's already a possibility because of the vernacular of languages, but then developing that into some sort of need to consume these books, i.e., that's where that 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 manipulation takes place. He goes on to say that the revolutionary, and he is arguing that it's revolutionary, which is interesting, somewhat of a capitalist revolutionary, but revolutionary. Mm -hmm. He argues the revolutionary vernacularizing thrust of capitalism was given further impetus by three extraneous factors, two of which contributed directly to the rise of national consciousness. This is very important. He says the first and ultimately the least important was a change in the character of Latin itself. I don't want to spend a lot of time here talking about Latin. Neither myself or Nick are philologists or language experts by any stretch of the imagination. But he essentially is arguing is that Latin itself had changed. Obviously, most of our listeners are going to be aware that for the longest time, especially in the Middle Ages in Europe, it was a language of the elite. Those that controlled, of course, all all construction of knowledge were speaking Latin and slowly but surely over time, vernacular languages developed underneath Latin, obviously inspired by Latin, but it of course caused a break between elites. And of course, I don't want to use the term working class because we're talking about the middle ages here. We're talking about basically like a a feudal society, not necessarily Mm -hmm. a capitalist society, but you you see where we're going with this. Mm -hmm. That's the first factor he wants to talk about. The second though, was the impact of the reformation itself, which at the same time owed much of its success to print capitalism. I've already kind of reflected on that when we were talking about it. So I don't, I mean, is there anything you want to add to that second point that he makes? No, I mean, I feel like we've talked about before the, the Protestant reformation and the importance of the printing press there. And the fact that um, Martin Luther printed his works in German, right? Which had a huge impact on the entire process. But like he's talk, he's mentioned specifically how that created new markets for the book printing industry, right. how crucial that was in that process. He goes on to say that in effect, Luther became the first best-selling author, so, so known, or to put it another way, the first writer who could sell his new books on the basis of his name. Um, I think he adds that in just to discuss the idea of capitalism and how sometimes we try and separate capitalism from like the the perceived religiosity or religious liberation Mm -hmm. of the Protestant Reformation when in fact they're completely entwined. And again, we don't have time to dig into that in this specific episode. If you want way more on that, Nick leads a great discussion um, on Max Weber um, and his ideas that make this, this connection and correlation for us. Um, and I think at this point, it, uh, among most of our listeners, they're probably well aware of the connection there between, of course, the birth of capitalism and the Protestant Reformation. Anything else you want to? I mean, not to mention this idea of I like mean, celebrity, right? How it doesn't even matter really what the work was. It was at the, eventually Martin Luther's works would sell solely on his name, regardless of the content, right? And it's just a commodification of someone's persona at that point. 
Well, and the fact that they're being sold in a quote unquote liberatory process is, is, mm-hmm. is, is uh, an irony to say the least. Right. The commodification of essentially the revolution. Right. Right. He says the coalition between Protestantism and print capitalism exploiting cheap popular editions quickly created large new reading publics, not least among merchants and women who typically knew little or no Latin and simultaneously mobilized them for political religious purposes, basically individualizing knowledge, which was part of it, right? Like, like you are trying to, and, 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 and Luther was, was not hiding this, try and take power from the church and give it and give it to the individual. Fine, but commodifying it on the way down. Yeah, and the point is that, like, you know, when the print industry was just in the very beginning printing works of Latin, the customer base was very narrow, right? It was the elites that could read Latin. But as, like you said, they had the the proliferation of common vernaculars, and then all of a sudden, you know, like he says, quote, quickly created large new reading publics. Well, that was important, right? As the Reformation took hold, and people became individually more literate, and these vernaculars became more solidified into culture, now all of a sudden the print industry had a much wider customer base of all of these, you know, quote unquote, average people that could not read and now had a hunger for information. Now all of a sudden the market was like, you know, essentially wide open relatively. Perfect. The third part um, of the revolutionizing of the vernacular and its effect here on national consciousness was the geographically uneven spread of particular vernaculars as instruments of administrative centralization centralization by certain well-positioned would-be absolutist monarchs. Don't want to spend a lot of time on there. In, in, in layman's terms, basically, he's saying is these vernacular languages, as they spread, of course, across the Western world, at least in, in, that's where we're framing it for now, um, that they became the administrative languages um, of the elites, slowly but surely replacing Latin, which, of course, only encouraged a more nationalistic understanding of certain practices, like legislation, for example. So definitely a big, big part there. Anything you want to add to that? I don't think that's right. Like He says that you know, Latin was really never used as the language of formal political systems. Like it was never like in medieval Europe or something like the official quote unquote, like language of the monarchy or something. It just, it just was the language of the elite, but that as these individual vernaculars Mm -hmm. develop and are separated geographically, which is key, Now, all of a sudden, these monarchs that are ruling over specific geographical areas use these languages as the official language of their kingdom. And that, as a result, then lends itself to language being used for nationalistic purposes. Now, all of a sudden, like this is the language of our kingdom. And so we will learn this language. All official documents will be in this language, et cetera. So it further solidifies the national identity. Of course, we're still beyond before the point of like formal nations, but he's saying this is the origins of like how this happened and how the print industry and how language played a very key role into, you know, these very early days that would eventually give birth to burgeoning nations. I mean, which was, you know, that that was a contrast to before, right? Like we're starting to see that separation. Some of the larger empires of the past, the Romes or more recently, I guess, in terms of what we're talking about here, the Ottoman Empire, these are these are culturally diverse, linguistically diverse. Like these are very diverse places, but they all kind of operated under the banner of whatever, Roman or Ottoman or whatever, whatever subject mm-hmm. population we're looking at here. 
starting to see how as that begins to leak into these later like things that we call empires, you see the origin of national consciousness make its way in there. And if, obviously, it's going to lead to the fragmentation of those empires, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, he says a quote that kind of explains what we were both just saying. He says, quote, it is essential to bear in mind that this sequence was a series of state, not national languages, and that the state concern covered at various times, not only today's England and Wales, but also portions of Ireland, Scotland and France. Obviously, huge elements of the subject populations knew little or nothing of Latin, Norman, French or early English, not till almost a century after early English's political in Thronement was London's power swept out of France. So he's saying these weren't nations yet, but they could be considered states that covered at the time what would become multiple nations. Absolutely. He goes on to say one clear sign of the difference is that the old administrative languages were just that, languages used by and for officialdoms for their own inner convenience. There was no idea of systematically imposing the languages on the dynasts' various subject populations. But it does end up happening. And he con- kind of c- concludes these thoughts here by basically saying what in a positive sense made the new communities imaginable was a half fortuitous but explosive interaction between a system of production and a productive and productive relations, capitalism, a technology of communications, print, and the fatality of a human linguistic diversity. What do you think of that? That's probably the most powerful quote in this little section. Oh, yeah, for sure. I have that one highlighted in green also, right? He says it's, it's production, right? This material circumstances, i.e. capitalism, this very specific technology, right, the printing press and the print industry, etc., and the fact that linguistic diversity was lending itself to these circumstances where language became incredibly important, and important in such a way where it could be used as a tool to control to fragment and to make people think in very specific ways and view other people in very specific ways and become the official languages of what would become nations through the use of, you know, formal languages for administration and so forth. So at this intersection of linguistic administration, capitalism and um, and uh, and the market, we see three different ways um, and print, excuse me, and print is what I actually meant to say. We see three different ways. Basically, he says these print languages laid the basis for national consciousness in three distinct ways. Let me clarify in his, his words, not mine. He says, first and foremost, they created unified fields of exchange and communication below Latin and above the spoken vernacular. In the process, they gradually became aware of the hundreds of thousands, even millions of people in their particular language field. And at the same time, that only those hundreds of thousands or millions so belonged. That's important. And, and I mean, essentially, what's he saying here, Nick, that, that the vernacular language is now being print, something you can hold, read, see, whatever, touch, feel. How does that affect the way we think about others that can also hold, touch, think, feel, understand? That's key. Mm-hmm. What's he saying? I mean, it, his whole thesis, right, is that it creates these communities that we imagine exist and that become important to us, even though they're completely fabricated. These people that are like our linguistic, you know, compatriots were like, I can read in English and I speak English and this other person can read and speak in English. We have something in common. There's some sense of solidarity there. But more importantly, it creates a very specific delineation between us and then the people that cannot read and speak and understand English. So it starts to create this like bifurcation in our consciousness between us and them, right, linguistically and consciously how we interpret the world, and so on. 
And we're already in an era of other ways that we've find to manufacture us and them paradigms, right? We've done mm-hmm. other episodes on this. This is this is also the era where we see the birth of like modern day racism. Um, we see it obviously through like positive positivist lenses. That's obviously going to come into uh, fruition at this during this era. We see, of course, the market driven de- uh, deviations that are go- of course going to be spread around the world through mercantilism. And now what? Anderson is saying is that we're seeing these divides linguistically more so. Just like we said before, we might be under the auspices in some sort of dynasty, a Habsburg dynasty per se. Like, yes, there's we we understand we're speaking different vernaculars, but there's something different about reading the different vernaculars in mass, right? Like through this mass communication and the tie to the market that's causing a further divide. He's talking about it, obviously, at least a, a little bit more um, pleasant way that it could be solidarity or unification. And I know a lot of nationalists like to talk about it that way. But for me, it's it's about creating divides. Mm-hmm. The second thing he says is print capitalism gave a new fixity to language, which in the long run helped to build that image of antiquity so central to the subjective idea of the nation. What's he saying with that? I mean, he goes on further, but I don't I don't have anything else highlighted in that second point. Um, but I think it's a, still a very important important point. What is he saying here, Nick? So he's saying that the advent of the print industry, it didn't stop it, but it definitely extremely slowed the development of language, how it changed the differences between different vernaculars you know, um, et cetera, in different regions and so forth that clearly had never happened before. Right. Um, Until the print industry really flourished, language and different terms that were used in different areas for different things and so forth. I mean, there could be drastic differences between uh, one area and another area that were not separated by very much geographically. But here, let's, let's use English as an example. As books began being printed in English specifically, it created this fixed version of English where like, okay, these books, this says this and this book, like, right. So we don't have the very specific, like, you know, slang terms and different words for different things and so forth. It creates this fixed version of the language itself, which functions to further solidify the separation between, you know, us versus them, those that can speak our language and those can't as our language becomes much more solidified and doesn't change as much over time and so on. He goes on to say that he also uses the word, um, the, it builds the image of antiquity mm-hmm. as well. And one of the things that, that we've voiced again in other videos here uh, on this channel or in other podcasts that if you might have listened to us is the idea of writing um, often is painted as like some sort of great advent. And I'm not going to necessarily uh, disagree with Adam, whatever, I'm an academic, I read, I'm reading right now from Benedict Anderson. Obviously, it's, it, it plays an important role. But one thing that we never really consider when we think about the advent of writing and creating this fixed understanding of knowledge is it makes it far more controllable and far less adaptable over time. If we think about why writing was invented, if we go back to the earliest forms of, of, of writing that we actually have deciphered, much of it has to do with control over narrative, either co- controlling creation stories by state powers or creating laws if we want to pick on Hammurabi's code or, you know, what are some other examples? Uh, ancient China's book of songs. Like these are ways to control behavior, control resources. That's where writing became paramount. And obviously, importantly, when we start thinking about religious doctrines, controlling narrative. As that evolves over time, we can see how this control 
now because of the advent of the printing press and markets and so on and so forth can be disseminated en masse. And what that can lead to into creating this understanding of a national consciousness that must be controlled. What do you think of that? I mean, also the fact that it's now being printed in a book, we are stepping away from oral traditions, right? Where oral traditions could change. I mean, they did change, you know, drastically from one generation to the next. But now that we have books that considerably last, you know, forever, uh, relatively, the knowledge becomes fixated to become solid and concrete where, you know, I print this book and that book doesn't change, right? Yeah. It's not like I tell you one story and then I tell someone else another story and then that person changes it slightly when they're telling it to their, you know, grandchildren or whatever. It's like now there's this thing that is solid that is not going to change. So I read the exact same thing that you read and the next generation is also going to read that as it existed exactly the same. Which is a, a great irony, if not hypocrisy. We argue that this understanding of knowledge is, of course, helping understand us as individuals and we get to filter. But what it's actually doing is, is quite the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. like, like if we have an oral history, yes, that story is going to change. And of course, us that live in this modern um, um, society predicated on the written word, right? Like everything's predicated on the written word. We have to prove it. We have to cite it. We have to like all of those types of things. We argue, well, that's how we validate it. But 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 that's the antithesis, right, to liberation. Mm -hmm. yep. And that's the great irony here. We, we lose sight of that. The written word is a form of, of uh, is a mechanism for control and just not a mechanism for control, but of, and this for our terms here, a mass consciousness. Yeah, I was about to say, I wonder, surely there must be, but this isn't my, obviously, expertise or area of research. Surely there must be, though, work on how print specifically and then mass media later on leads to you know a reduction in individuation yeah like we lose some of our individuality by all consuming the same media in this case print books right right sheeple it's an easy way mm -hmm. to make more sheeple right and that's it, it's kind of funny that we think of it as 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 the opposite that all of this advance and all of these written works and of course the diversity of sources and all that other stuff but it actually doesn't do that it really doesn't mm -hmm. do that at least, I mean, especially when it's used to create, you know, nations. Well, he goes on to say, third, print capitalism created image languages of power of a kind different from the older administrative vernaculars. Certain dialects inevitably were closer to each print language and dominated their final forms. Mm -hmm. He's using those words intentionally, dominated. Right. Languages says, of their power. disadvantaged cousins still assimilable to their emerging print language lost caste above all because they were unsuccessful or only relatively successful in insisting on their own print form. So he's saying all these other dialects basically lost out to whichever languages were dominating in the printing industry. Right. And that, that well, became sort of the decision-making factor, you know, like unspoken that like this, this dialect was going to win out because the most books were being printed and the most people were reading it, et cetera. If your dialect wasn't being printed, like it was over, you know? So what we're doing here is we're appealing to the idea of individualism, or at least that was the thought, while undoing the practices of individualism, mm -hmm. at least in terms of the production of knowledge. Right. Crazy. Okay. He goes on to say, it remains only to emphasize that in their origins, the fixing of print languages and the differentiation of status between them were largely unselfconscious processes resulting from the explosive interaction between capitalism, technology, and human linguistic diversity. But as with so much else in the history of nationalism, once there, they could, uh, become, for, uh, they could become formal models to be imitated 
and were expedient, cautiously exploited in a Machiavellian spirit. So he's arguing that there is no great mastermind as to how the process took place. It just happened. We can't Mm -hmm. trace this back to Martin Luther or Gutenberg and say they were some sort of mastermind to create like national sheeple. That's not what their goal was. And yet they started the process or played a role in the process. We can't say they started it, but they played a role in the process. And from here on out, it can then be used for, and he uses this very specific word, Machiavellian spirit. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, like what you said is key, right? It's not that Gutenberg and others and like uh, Luther were... They might have even been well-intentioned to liberate yeah, people. And I'm assuming they both were, right? They weren't yeah. like, they weren't the Machiavellians being like, oh my God, imagine with this printing press, how many right. people I can rule and how wealthy I'll be and like so forth. In fact, the story of Gutenberg is pretty interesting. He didn't end up wealthy as a result of his mismanagement of his invention, but that's a whole other thing. Ironic here though, in this context. But once those technologies and this whole sort of social milieu, including capitalism, the print industry, the linguistic diversity, et cetera, once this intersection of all of these things existed and this new world existed where these three things were operating together, that those with the Machiavellian spirit, which I love that he uses that term, Mm -hmm. could very easily make use of all three of them together and master them to control people, you know, in ways that had never been seen before, right? So we understand, at least in his argument, as we kind of move forward here, that the origin of national consciousness at least is is abetted heavily by print, by capitalism, and of course the um, explosion, not excuse me, explosion, explosion in the power of vernacular languages. I was, not, I was about to say explosion of vernacular languages, but that's not, that. it's actually the opposite. The mm-hmm. explosion in the power of certain vernacular languages. Right. Okay. Now he's going to, we're going to switch gears a little bit here and talk about how um, the intersection of national consciousness and imperialism, i.e. nationalism and imperialism and their intersections. So we're going to move forward. Anything you want to chime in with before we we cross this bridge to the next? Okay. So an interesting thing that he has to say here as he begins his conversation on nationalism and imperialism, he says the lexicographic revolution in Europe, the one we just got done talking about, however, created and gradually spread the conviction that languages in Europe, at least, were, so to speak, the personal property of quite specific groups, their daily speakers and readers, and moreover, that these groups imagined as communities were entitled to their autonomous place in a fraternity of equals. Wow. Okay. Um, what do you think he's digging at here? I mean, I obviously have some thoughts, but what do you think he's, he's digging at? We've already talked about what he's now calling the lexicographic revolution, the one we just got done mm-hmm. talking about the last 20, 30 minutes. But what else? I mean, he's, he's essentially saying that these groups that, you know, had the same language, et cetera, solidified themselves into in-groups and out-groups, groups that felt, you know, antagonism with the, each other that felt solidarity with them within themselves. And that, I mean, we know how this ends up, right. That go to war with each other constantly. And it's obviously not as if no group of people had ever gone to war before. This is a, a wholly different thing, I think. And while this was something, it's going to be a little bit different in the West where, 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 where France and England and these places have already kind of developed ideas of sovereignty and, and, and mm-hmm. slowly but surely like national borders are coming into fruition. He's really picking on, as this spreads probably a little bit further east, 
Um, a couple other European dynasties as he's focused on Europe at this point, like the, again, the Habsburgs and the Ottoman, I've, I've, I've already brought up a couple because these, at least in terms of geography, are wildly diverse, not just in terms mm-hmm. of ecology, but in terms of linguistics, in terms of faith. In ter- like these are wildly diverse, vast territories. And all of a sudden, what we're seeing here is as this idea of national consciousness through the vernacular languages spreads, we're seeing somewhat of a idea or, and, and he uses the word, entitlement to an autonomous place in a world of equals or a fraternity of equals, he says. And this is, of course, going to lead to slowly but surely the fragmentation of these empires. Now, whether that's for good or for bad is for our listeners to judge. Um, Some might say, of course, this is liberatory. Some also might say it's divisive um, and leads to further conflict. One of those conflicts ends up being one of the most bloody in human history, of course, when we get down the line to World War I, especially when we're talking about Ottoman and Habsburgs. But any thoughts on this idea? No, I think it's an important point, right, that these groups that are finding solidarity within themselves, like you mentioned, right, want to carve out then their own geographical area. And that's what leads to conflict very clearly. Now, before we get to that conflict that I, I, I kind of previewed there all the way in the 20th century, we're not supposed to be there yet with the World War Ones. Some of these empires, and again, he's picking on Ottomans and Habsburgs and also Russia. I kind of left them off the list, but he's basically picking on these groups. There was some last gasp um, reactions to the multilinguistic empires as they tried to remain relevant Um not just, of course, on the global as global acts or actors, but relevant to their own constituents, right? Um, and to maintain control, there were some last gas ep- ep- uh, efforts. Excuse me. Um, he says these official nationalisms can be best understood as a means for combining naturalization with retention of dynastic power, in particular over the huge polygot domains accumulated since the Middle Ages. Or to put it another way, for stretching the short tight skin of the nation over the gigantic body of the empire. And he picks on Russification as one of those easy examples. But what's he saying here? This idea that, okay, we understand vernacular is a thing. We understand markets are being developed. We see some of the impact of, of course, commodification of this and the appeal to individuality, even though it's actually a homogenization in a way. We see that if we're these empires, we're these dynasties. How do we react to that? we repackage a different type of nationalism as an imperial nationalism. Yeah, he's saying like the dynastic rulers, right? The czars and so forth, basically see the writing on the wall and they're reactionary and say, okay, well, let's do, he calls it official nationalisms, right? It's sort of like a pseudo nationalism. He says essentially their reaction is, well, fine, let's try to create nationalism that covers the entire empire and that will solidify our position uh, as the rulers of that empire will then be safe from this coming, you know, splitting up of our geographical area that we rule. It's completely reactionary based on the elite uh, of the empires, the ones that are ruling over the entire empire. I like his Russian example specifically. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go into it a little bit here um, for our listeners who might not be familiar. And I'm not even, I won't even consider myself a Russian historian by any stretch of the imagination, especially during this period of the, of the 19th century that he's in. But I want to go into some of this example in, in depth, in detail, so we can kind of understand what he's talking about here, this reaction by um, the Ancien um, empires as they are dealing with uh, this, this, this revolutionary process. Um, okay. He says, um, and he's talking specifically about the Romanovs, so we are in Russia. He says, as noted earlier, the language of the court of St. Petersburg in the 18th century was French, while that of much of the provincial nobility was German. 
In the aftermath of Napoleon's invasion, Count Sergei Uvarov, in an official report of 1832, proposed that the realm should be based on the three principles of autocracy, orthodoxy, and nationality. Um, if the first two were old, the third was quite novel and somewhat premature in an age where half the nation, quote unquote, were still serfs and more than uh, and more than half spoke a mother tongue other than Russian. So he's kind of setting the stage that here we see in the 1830s, um, after, of course, Napoleon's invasion, which brought a new understanding of nationalism to the East, because, of course, we, we, we argue we definitely have an episode on this of the impact of the French Revolution on national consciousness brings that into Russia, and this reaction by the Russian aristocracy reveals that they're going to try and find a way to use that, um, again, to stay relevant, to stay in power. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say, it was not until the reign of Alexander III between 1881 and 1894 that the Russification became official dynastic policy long after Ukrainian, Finnish, Let, and other nationalisms had appeared within the empire. And of course, if those of us that know even just a little bit of a, about a Russian history, it's kind of late in the game here if we're talking about Alexander III. The empire itself is going to fall here within the next couple of decades due to the Bolshevik Revolution. So this really is a last gasp effort. In 1887, in the Baltic provinces, Russian was made compulsory as the language of instruction in all state schools above the lowest primary classes, a measure later extended to private schools as well. What is this um, process here when we start making um, our education, our quote unquote, I wouldn't call it that necessarily for the 1800s, but our public, our more national understanding of education in only one language? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to do? I mean, yeah, we're trying to wipe out any of the other dialects, any of the other languages that exist within the area that we have control over, for sure. For what? For what ends, though? Why? Why are we trying? Why would we? Whether we're autocrats, Russian Romanov autocrats of the 1800s, or maybe we would even argue um, modern USers in our education system. Although we, we've actually added a, a, some more languages in there um, very recently, but mu- but to protest, to strong protest by certain mm-hmm. individuals. What are we trying to do? We're trying to create one singular, you know, narrow identity of like, this is what it means to be a quote unquote citizen of our nation, right? Or in this case, you know, this is what it means to fall under the rule of our specific empire. You must speak like this and behave like this and so forth. But doesn't that speak to the hypocrisy of the national consciousness, the nationalism and all of these and capitalism itself as the vehicle to, of course, spread nationalism? leads to individuals understanding of oneself but only under the under, only under the rules of a national consciousness a mass movement isn't oh, that more intuitive oh yeah totally right it's like you know the whole liberal idea that we are free as citizens of the nation well i mean this flies in the face of that because they're essentially saying you will lose your individualism you must specifically follow, you know, Group you thing. must speak this language. You must follow this, these norms. You must have this one singular identity, right? We're all in it together. You must lose certain aspects of your individual personality so that we may control you better, so that you may lose any idea that you are different and that you might, you know, in theory, be thinking so may- about a revolution or forming your own nation or... So control, so the use of of single languages, what are those individuals scared of? I mean, we can even use the modern U.S. example since since much of our audience is is modern U.S.ers. Mm -hmm. What is the fear about having to um, understand or speak even a a cursory amount of Spanish? What's the fear there? I mean, the fear is irrationally that they will lose their, you know, the key part of their core personality that is 
you know, American. But their personality but, isn't even individual. They're nope. they're sheep, mm-hmm. as we've understood. Right. Yeah. I mean, you and I agree on that for sure. They would not. But well, I mean, I guess they get to choose again between a Dodge Ram and a Ford F one fifty. But I mean, mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily make them individuals. Right. And I mean, in this case, in our very narrow example, they're choosing between English and Spanish, right? And they, but the fact that there's two instead of one is just catastrophic for their identity. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's get back into the era that Benedict Anderson is talking about. He moves on from the uh, Russian example to the more complicated English example. So I also want to talk about that because England was also an empire, an empire that was different than Russia, right? Like Russia's empire was mostly like on their borders, right? Like, yes, it was wildly diverse. You have Turkmen in the South and, and of course you have people, all the different peoples of Siberia and, and in the East, or excuse me, in the West, you have of course, Finns and so on and so forth. And of course you have the Baltic States, but it's all within like a general geographic region. Well, during this time, another empire is actually growing quickly, a capitalist empire. The English Empire. And it, of course, is not just covering people that have been um, historically or traditionally linked with England. It's now, of course, quote unquote, conquering a whole host of diverse array of people, but still making them part of the empire. So let's talk about this example. And of course, if we, we can't talk about the English Empire and he can't talk about the English Empire without really focusing heavily on India. So he says, India only became, quote unquote, British 20 years after Victoria's uh, uh, accession to the throne. In other words, until after the 1857 mutiny, that was by the Sepoys, um, India was ruled by a commercial enterprise, not by a state and certainly not by a nation state. But change was on the way. When the East India Company's charter came up for renewal in 1813, Parliament mandated the allocation of 100,000 rupees a year for the promotion of native education, both quote-unquote oriental and quote-unquote western. Um, in 1823, a committee of public instruction was set up in Bengal, and in 1834, uh, Thomas Babington uh, Macaulay became president of this committee, declaring that a single shelf of a good European library is worth the whole native literature of India and Arabia. Let's pause there for just a second and, 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 and discuss um, the absolute asinine statement that Macaulay That's hilarious, because I was reading this. I was like, I know Jared's going to talk about this. I am going to talk about it. Like, the idea, of course, <laughs> of somehow superior Western understanding of the world is absolutely embarrassing. I mean, we can go through numerous historical examples, but let's just start with this. First and foremost, where did civilization begin? Oh, Middle East and India, yeah. China and Africa as well. Not in, of course, the West. Whose ideas did the Westerners copy? I'm just kidding, listeners. I'm not going to do this all day. We're supposed to be focusing on Benedict Anderson, um, not uh, Babington. Ba- whose name is our kid Babington? I mean, Babington. someone British as hell. That's yeah, not, Babington Macaulay. But of course, yes, like I said, this type of statement reveals, of course, the wild ignorance of the British at this time in their imperial um, conquests. And that ignorance being a necessary component, though, however, of championing British nationalism. Mm -hmm. This idea that somehow the British were unique and amazing and they have the right to, of course, spread their ideals and wisdom around the world because none other matter. None other have mattered. We already know that's not the case. Mm -hmm. We already know that's not the case. But here you are, if you're going to disseminate this information through, and of course he's um, administering education programs, he's going to build up this ideal, not only for the British population to rationalize their behavior on a global scale, but to denigrate any possibility of a burgeoning, and he uses these two cases, of an Arab or Indian nationalism. Why? I mean, this is outright indoctrination, right? There's no... There's no skirting around this issue. They created a system of 
education throughout the colonies, in this specific case, India, to indoctrinate people into English identities. I mean, that's what they wanted to do and to try to minimize and erase as much as they could any other kind of identity, language, religion, etc., that they right. might have felt a connection to. So this British shit stain, Babington Macaulay goes on to say, as uh, and, and in the words of ben, through via the words of Benedict Anderson, a thoroughly English educational system was to be introduced, which in Macaulay's own ineffable words would create quote unquote a class of persons Indian in blood and color, but English in taste, in opinion, in morals, and in intellect. In 1836, he wrote that no Hindu who has received an English education ever remains sincerely attached to his religion. It is my firm belief, so they always were, that if our plans of education are followed up, there will not be a single idolater among the respectable classes in Bengal 30 years hence. What's Macaulay's goal here? I mean, his, his essential goal is to say in three decades, we can completely wipe out anyone that believes in this religion whatsoever. Through our education system. Erasure. This is historical erasure. Through socialization, through print media, for a capitalist enterprise. We cannot leave that out. Mm -hmm. So this is where we start getting into the insidious nature of nationalism and all of the different ways it can be used. All right. Final example that he uses here on the idea of nationalism and imperialism is a fun one for all of us. Um, It's the Japanese example. Um, And of course, we can't talk about the Japanese example without discussing, of course, first isolationism, um, right, under the, what is it, the Tokugawa, I don't know Japanese history that well, but like from the Tokugawa shogunate on, a little bit of isolationism, right? And of course, that's going to end slowly but surely as feudal Japan um, um, starts to wither. And one historical demarcation point that a lot of of Westerners like to look at is when the U.S., um, um, uh, naval man Commodore Perry shows up um, in Japan with his, and I now I quote from uh, Benedict Anderson, with his black ships uh, preemptorily battered down the walls that for so long had kept Japan in self-imposed isolation. After 1854, the self-confidence and inner legitimacy of the Bako, ba, uh, Bakufu, or the Tokugawa shogunate regime, were rapidly undermined by a conspicuous impotence in the face of the penetrating West. Uh, West. Under the banner of Sonujoi, uh, Revere, the Sovereign, Expel the Barbarians, a small band of middle-ranking samurai, primarily from the Satsuma and Choshu Han, um, finally overthrew it in 1868. That's just a real quick history lesson, long story short, about the fall of the Tokugawa uh, shogunate. But basically what he's going to say at this point in time is what is put in place will be the implementation of intersecting nationalism and imperialism. And it comes in the form of the Meiji. Once in power, however, the rebels, whom as, re- as we remember today as the Meiji oligarchs, founded that their military prowess did not automatically guarantee political legitimacy. So unlike in prior Japanese regimes that, that have been introduced to some Western ideals, now that those have been introduced particularly through the Dutch, that merely at this point, but he's just saying kicking the most ass does not grant them legitimacy. There's going to have to be something more, and that something more is going to end up being nationalism. Anything you want to add before I continue with this Japanese example? No, I like what exactly you just said is a really good example of how nationalism is tied directly to a much more complex political atmosphere. And it creates the environment of sort of like international relations, right? Mm -hmm. Where, like you said, it's not just that kicking the most ass. It's no longer might makes right anymore, right? Now there must be something more. You must have this national identity, you must have this 
this group solidarity that you are able to, I mean, in this case, completely manufacture, right? This imagined community. It's no longer that you can just be the biggest and strongest and have the biggest army, et cetera. There must be something additional. It's, it's a much more complex view of politics and economics. While still so taking existing narratives or understandings of, of place and time and using them to your benefit. The Meiji don't break with, like, of course, their ties to um, Amaterasu, of course, the sun goddess and this whole dynastic lineage. They don't break with any of it, but they nationalize it. Mm-hmm. They use it. They warp it. Okay. Uh, one of the basic means adopted for consolidating the oligarchy's domestic position was thus a variant of mid-century official nationalism, rather consciously modeled on the Hohenzollern, and I probably ho- I, I butchered that, Prussian Germany. Between 1868 and 1871, all residual local feudal military units were dissolved, giving Tokyo a centralized monopoly of the means of violence. In 1872, an imperial rescript ordered the promotion of universal literacy among adult males. This is key. Basically, after, of course, the Meiji um, are, are able to consolidate at least power through conquest, they then start these programs of manufacturing an official nationalism. De- disarming the population would actually be part of it. Um, but it's not just about disarming the population. It's about understanding and being able to use language in this case to socialize them. And that's the more important part. A lot of historians focus on like taking all the swords away from the samurai. Like everyone knows this famous example that takes place during this time period, but that's not just it. The imperial rescript ordered the promotions of universal literacy among adult males. That's the key part, Mm -hmm. not the taking of the swords. I mean, the taking of the swords does matter, but why am I saying that? Why is the taking of the swords not as important um, as the um, promotion of universal literacy? It's funny because like we talked about earlier, right? That could sound like something that's really good. Like, yes, we need everyone to be able to read mm-hmm. so we can have an intelligent nation and so forth. But I mean, in this case, it really is to go back to the term that Anderson used, a Machiavellian strategy to where if we can make the population read, then we can more easily indoctrinate them. Right. So it's not just a singular, if we take their weapons away, they will no longer be able to fight back. It's that we are going to do that and, right? We are going to do that and we are going to indoctrinate them into this national consciousness, this official nationalism in this case, right? Because it's sort of a pseudo nationalism still trying to be implemented at the level of empire, which doesn't go well, as we know. In this example, Anderson goes on to say the Japanese peasantry was for, was freed from subjection subjection to the feudal fem uh, system and henceforth exploited directly by the state and commercial agricultural landowners. So exploitation didn't go away. It's just a different exploiter in this case, the state rather than the landed estate. Yep. Okay. In 1889, there followed a Prussian-style constitution and eventually universal male suffrage. Now, why were the why was this implementation so easy here in Japan? And I'm going to kind of paraphrase a little bit rather than reading direct quotes from Anderson. There's three main reasons that I've identified at least in Anderson's work here. Why was it so easy in Japan? First and foremost, Japan's um, homogeneity. That that's one reason why. It's not nearly, it was not nearly as diverse as some of the empires we talked about when we were talking about Britain or Russia in these other examples. Mm-hmm. The second thing is a single historical dynasty that I already referenced, right? Third, invasion of outsiders required protection. Obviously, a lot of that had been, it had been an insular society for a very long period of time, and the new nationalists can argue that they will be the ones that protect them from the outsiders, from the, the us versus them paradigm. Mm-hmm. That's why it was so easy. 
Um, anything you want to add to those three main points on why it was so easy in Japan for nationalism to take hold? No, he has another quote here, which I like. He said, here's a fine example of the character of official nationalism, an anticipatory strategy adopted by dominant groups, which are threatened with marginalization or exclusion from an emerging nationally imagined community, right? So he's saying that nationalism is beginning to emerge. And so these dominant groups, these elite that are ruling the empires, fear that they are going to be the ones that are marginalized out of this new national consciousness. So they invent it themselves and essentially co-opt the emerging nationalism and try to implement it at the level of empire by doing these things, right? Removing the weapons of any of anyone that could potentially have the power to challenge their legitimacy by creating literate populations so that they can more easily indoctrinate the populations, creating you know, school systems in the case of Britain, right, in their colonies and so forth. Oh, but you can vote. Right. (laughs) Um, Anyway, okay, continuing with the Japanese example. Fortunate to rule in an age when military technology was still advancing at a relative amble, they were able, with their catch-up armaments program, to turn Japan into an independent military power by the end of the century. Spectacular successes by Japan's conscript army against China in 1894 and 95, and by her navy against Tsardom in 1905, plus the annexation of Taiwan and Korea, all consciously propagandized through schools and print, were extremely valuable in creating the general impression that the conservative oligarchy was an authentic representation of the nation of which Japanese were coming to imagine themselves members. So it's not just the military conquests of which Japan was, was, was winning, quite often towards the end of the 20th century and would until Mm -hmm. the mid 20th century is that they were able to use the print and the language now to disseminate this information to the masses, further um, indoctrinating them in this idea of national sovereignty and national identity. Yep. Okay. Um, Further going into the Japanese example I find a quote here that's very interesting. Consequently, when the premises of the national hierarchy were transferred horizontally into the international sphere, international problems were reduced to a single alternative, conquest or be conquered. In the absence of any higher normative standards which, uh, with which to gauge international relations, power politics is bound to be the rule and yesterday's timid defensiveness will become today's unrestrained expansionism. He's basically trying to explain at this moment in time how um, a couple of small victories and the introduction of nationalism and some other Western ideals, including some um, um, capitalist components to the economy, lead to this expansionist mindset at all costs that, of course, what he's doing us is he's walking us towards what will happen um, in the uh, beginning of World War II. That's what he's walking us towards is how mm-hmm. that how that became, how that snowballed, um, I guess is the yeah. word I'm looking for. Any yeah, thoughts for on sure. that? No, I mean, it's interesting how this very early on relationship between language and the Japanese example, right? Isolationism, language, the, you know, undoing of isolationism and the way that the dynasties were structured and had been historically, et cetera, gives birth to this really interesting and uh, somewhat in certain ways unique sort of empirical imperial nationalism i think is very interesting it's almost inevitable that when that nationalism um catches a certain um wind that that it will snowball into this and and japan's a great example obviously germany would be a great example from the time period that we're now uh, referencing he goes on to use the idea that and he says this benedict anderson says this in this work he says as the uh, parcelization of africa at the congress of berlin in 1885 showed 
great nations, i.e. how good a nation we are, we're global conquerors. And the Japanese are watching that from the sideline. How plausible then to argue then for Japan to be accepted as a quote unquote great, she too should turn Tenno into emperor and launch overseas adventures, even if she was late to the game and had a lot of catching up to do. So they're watching what Europe is doing during this nationalist imperial phase of which we used England as an example. And Japan's watching from the sidelines and realizes, okay, we're not going to get in, obviously, in this this Africa example, but where can we exert this type of international influence to mm-hmm. show how great a nation we are? Well, of course, their immediate sphere of influence, Korea, Taiwan, eventually down into the Philippines, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's where, of course, that's where that expansionist mindset comes in. And the competition that is brought in by the capitalist part of this, why else would you be competing? Why could you just not be a great nation on your own? Right. Resources. Okay, so we see the intersection here with these three examples of imperialism and nationalism, Russia, England, and Japan. And although they're all somewhat, they're actually all very different in how it came into being and their goals, Russia reactionary to a fracturing empire, England um, seeking, of course, to spread its ideals on a global level, and Japan reifying its position on a global scale as well. Any thoughts, any thoughts you want to make here as we kind of close out the idea of nationalism and imperialism and how honestly they, they are, uh, they're almost a seamless pairing in many ways, regardless of how you're going to use that nationalism. Yeah. And I think it does a really good job of, you know, previewing what's to come. I mean, it sets up for like why this doesn't work, right? This sort of pseudo early forms of, you know, imperial nationalism, and we, we know where this is headed clearly. And so he does a really good job of explaining really intricately why, you know, why this couldn't be, why this was destined to fail essentially, and why what we see happen in the early to mid 20th century, like why this happened, because it was inevitable essentially. All right. The last section that we will discuss from uh, Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities is the section titled Patriotism and Racism. Uh, before we get into that one, I did hope for it to be a little bit more fire than it was. It was a little bit of a letdown, but regardless, we're still going to dig into it. He has some things that are important that we want to want to flesh out here. So patriotism and racism, I'll kick right off by reading from Anderson. He says, whether either social change or transformed consciousness in themselves do much to explain the attachment that peoples feel for the inventions of their imaginations or to revive a question raised at the beginning of this text, why people are ready to die for these inventions. Um, Basically, this is the extreme notion of loyalty. In an age when it is so common for progressive cosmopolitan intellectuals, particularly in Europe, to insist on the near pathological character of nationalism, its roots in fear and hatred of the other, and its affinities with racism, it's useful to remind ourselves that nations inspire love and often profoundly self-sacrificing love. The cultural products of nationalism, poetry, prose, fiction, music, plastic arts show this love very clearly in thousands of different forms and styles. What's he talking about here? Like we, he's basically saying, be careful before we go too heavy into the fact that nationalism naturally breathes racism. He says, pause for a second. Why is he saying pause for a second? Because I'm going to be blunt. I don't want to pause. I, I do firmly believe nationalism leads to racism. But why does Benedict Anderson want me to pause? I mean, he says this is the second part of his main like goal of the book, right? He says yeah. he has two goals in the entire work. Which the first is to explain the origins of nationalism, how it came into being on a global historical scale. And the second is why people feel such 
uh, like just visceral and like life and death attachment to their nation, right? Why does this happen? So I think he's saying like, let's pause for a second because we need to really understand the nuances of the relationship between racism and nationalism and the order in which one, in which they happen, right? Which lends itself to the creation of the other and why and so forth. And then at that point, their reflexive relationship between the two, we need to really understand that before we can just blatantly say, you know, nationalism leads to racism. It's, it's more complex than that. And he's going to tell us how, right? The other interesting piece there, and I think maybe I, I miss said this earlier, the other interesting piece is oftentimes we uh, in history and, and the other human sciences kind of paint colonialism as a major player in um, racism. But he says not so, that what racism does exist or develops during this period of time is of usually a national character. Mm-hmm. He says, in everything natural, there is always something unchosen. In this way, nationness is assimilated to skin color, gender, parentage, and birth era. All those things one cannot help. What does he mean here? Yeah, I mean, he's saying it's not just about skin color, right? That this, this, this is not one and the same, but we can't have a conversation about one of these things without also mentioning all of the others, right? He says, nationness is assimilated to skin color, gender, parentage, and birth era, all those things one cannot help. So these are all things that we have no choice over, uh, but that we are going to be judged on as a result of the importance in our lives to nationalism, right? Well, and but but, but here's the other part, and I guess listeners, I, I did skip something important here. He's arguing throughout this that nationalism is also, and it's usually posited by the nation state as a natural development. Like this mm-hmm. is something that is, it's it's equated to just a natural thing that has occurred over time. Like you can't even question it. It's just the way it is, right? Like nationalism right. is just the way it is, which of course we've, we've done episodes prior that obviously challenge that. It's There's nothing natural about, the, about nationhood or anything along those lines. It's all manufactured, but they posit it as a natural progression. Which he so, says in the beginning, I think it's in the intro where he says like, how this is such uh, a a dichotomy between, you know, the scholars of history that very clearly all there's a consensus that the nation state is relatively young, but the nationalists who create this narrative and firmly believe that the nation has existed forever. And it's like the natural progression of things, right? Right. I, I, again, for, for, for U.S. listeners, you'll be very familiar with this idea, right? Like the way that the creation story of the United States is usually told. And of course, it's inculcation in students and stuff like that. But if we look at it on the general timeline of humanity, this country's 250 years old. Humans have been around for 350,000 years. There's nothing natural about that, right? Like that, it, it's, it's just not a thing. It's a thing that happened. It happened. It exists. But the, the idea of natural, that this was some sort of natural inevitability about it, that it was that it was destined to be not so, right? Highly manufactured, highly constructed. The reason that's important is because we're arguing that this nationalist, this Japanese nationalness, this British nationalist, this American nationalist, this French nationalist, whatever nationalist is, is, is on the same natural um, plane as gender or, or, or skin color or parentage or whatever. Essentially, you can't control any of those. And in a way, he's right in a way. No one before they're born as a little spirit floating down from wherever you think we come from says, I pick being born in whatever country, X, Y, or Z. We don't do that. So I guess in a mm-hmm. way, that's the appeal there. Yep. Um, okay. Although that doesn't stop people from being willing to die for and kill for these things that we have no choice over, right? 
He says, for most ordinary people of whatever class, the whole point of the nation is that it is interestless. Just for that reason, it can ask for sacrifices. Wow. What does he mean there? That the, We argue, so we would all obviously argue that the nation is full of interests, but he's using it differently here. He says the nation has no interests. What do you think he means? I mean, I think that he's saying that we view the nation as the combination, you know, I mean, the liberal idea, the combination of all of our interests as individuals, that the nation itself doesn't have interests, right? Okay. And so as a result... Not like a king or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's a perfect way of putting it, right? It's not like there's one person. We've now anonymized, essentially, the power of the nation. There's not one singular person that rules it even when we have presidents, et cetera, this is that one singular person isn't the one who controls the nation overall. We all know that, that the nation itself is this abstract, ambiguous concept that is really the interest of all of us as individuals, right? That's the argument. And as a result, it can request from us, right? It can quote unquote request from us the utmost sacrifice. Here he's talking about, you know, being willing to die for one's country. That's what he's getting at in this section. Well, and it purifies it because he goes on to say the idea of the ultimate sacrifice comes only with an idea of purity through fatality, dying for one's country. And somehow right. that becomes some sort of honorable or noble cause, even more honorable or noble than dying for one's family crest or dying for one's king in a prior epic. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's not only does it become honorable, it becomes essentially the most honorable, right? It's the pinnacle right. of honor to die selflessly in this case, like, right, for your nation. Like you said, dying for your family is a selfish act, right, or whatever, but dying for the nation is, is this narrative is built up that it's this selfless thing, you know. Which, of course, can be completely manipulated, as has been, and in, in, in obviously military mm -hmm. recruiting uh, in countless wars uh, fought by nation states all over the world. Millions upon millions of people dying throughout the 20th century as a result of this, um, all dying honorably, mind you. Um, like, it... Mm -hmm. It's, it's ludicrous. The whole thing's ludicrous. He goes on to say, dying for one's country, which usually one does not choose, assumes a moral grandeur, which dying for the Labor Party or the American Medical Association or perhaps even Amnesty International cannot rival. For these are all bodies one can join or leave all, uh, at will. What makes the nation different? Can we leave it at will? I mean, theoretically you can, but it's very difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not at will, right? It's definitely not as easy as you can leave, you know, the Labor Party or the American Medical Association, which I thought those are funny examples. Um, um, yeah, go we're ahead. stuck with that, right? So it has this gravitas attached to it that it's it's such a more important part of our identities than membership in these other organizations, right? Right, and 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 for a lot of people, it just seems like it's just a thing that they don't necessarily draw into critical inquiry. I guess that's why we're doing the series. But the more I I kind of go through it, the more I'm just like, I, how does anyone buy this shit? Um, <laughs> Anyway, oh, well, I guess one way is, and I have here in my notes, and I quote myself here, these dumbass songs. So here's a quote. He says, take national anthem, for example, <laughs> sung on national holidays, no matter how banal the words and mediocre the tunes, there is in this singing an experience of simultaneity. At precisely such moments, people wholly unknown to each other utter the same verses to the same melody, right? You're at the football game, and before the thing, you all rise, put your hand over your heart, you're singing the same thing, and obviously you feel part of something bigger, which of course is the antithesis to the individuality that was being sold to us at the very beginning. Right. Mm -hmm. Sheep. I mean, it's hypocrisy, right? Uh, 
All right, he goes on and it says, Thus today, even the most insular nations accept the principle of naturalization, the word, wonderful word, no matter how difficult in practice they make it. So the idea here is that if you want to immigrate to a country, yeah, there's a bunch of like different processes. You know those a lot better than I do regarding visas and so on and so forth. But if you want to become part of that country, you are to be naturalized. He's picking on the word here. Mm -hmm. Why do we use that word, naturalization, if you want to become a Spaniard or an American or a, a Frenchman? Yeah, it, that term is so loaded, and he points that out really well, right? That it's now implied that you are a natural citizen of this country, right? That it's natural. It's essentially, you've been a citizen all along, like welcome home type thing. Now that you've jumped through the hoops, now that you've proven to us that you will be loyal and so forth, and oftentimes paid exorbitant amounts of money, now that you've done this, like welcome to your natural home, right? Fair enough. Now, what does this have to do with racism? Because this section's titled Patriotism mm -hmm. and Racism. So we're going to fast forward a little bit here uh, and get into a section where he says the fact of the matter is that nationalism thinks in terms of historical destinies, while racism dreams of eternal contaminations transmitted from the origins of time through an endless sequence of loathsome copulations outside history. So this is where the nationalism does play a role that those that are coming into the nation or that are different from what the nation posits itself as are the reason racism comes into fruition rather than the colonial endeavors, which of course challenges a lot of historical understanding mm -hmm. of the birth of racism, including mine a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. He goes on to say the dreams of racism actually have their origins in ideologies of class rather than in those of nation, above all in claims to divinity among rulers and to blue or white blood and breeding among aristocracies. I struggle with that one. What do you think he's going at going after here? I, I One of my biggest complaints on his time is when people try to make the discussion of class um, more important than discussion of race in terms of oppression. I, I, I dislike that, especially among leftists. Well, I don't think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make it more important than nationalism, right? But I want to hear out what your thoughts are here on this. I mean, so he's saying that it's not as if the nation came first and then this racism based on skin color, let's just call it what it is, right, mm -hmm. was born out of that. He's saying it's much more tied to class, right, elite and not. And this idea that, you know, I mean, let's just say bourgeoisie and proletariat or uh, wealthy and not wealthy. And this idea, uh, I mean, he says right there, claims to divinity among rulers and to blue or white blood and breeding among aristocracies. He says it's, it's much more tied to not who's a member of what nation, but who is a member of the ruling class, right? Mm. Based on, you know, okay. divine right, which we know about, and you know, bloodlines and so forth. That's really sort of the discourse out of which racism is born, not so much the national discourse. Okay. Racism and anti-Semitism manifest themselves not across national boundaries, but within them. In other words, they justify not so much foreign wars as domestic repression and dominion. As has been repeatedly emphasized, official nationalism was typically a response on all parts of threatened dynastic and aristocratic groups, upper classes, to popular vernacular nationalism. Colonial racism was a major element in that conception of empire, which attempted to weld dynastic legitimacy and national community. 
What are your thoughts on that? So now, essentially, it's there is no either or argument that Benedict Anderson wants to make. Uh, even though I'm trying to have him make one, I, I can't actually have him make one. <laughs> He's arguing that there is a cross section across all of this: the patriotism, the class, the nationalism, the colonialism, and the imperialism all work to manufacture racism for different goals. Yeah, is I, mean, that I think it's a, it's a it's a powerful argument, right? The intersection between all of these things and the ways that they are implemented together. Yeah. And at different times, in different ways, the way that they manifest themselves lends itself to the creation of racism for all these various reasons that for us to distill it down to, you know, nationalism gives birth to racism is such an oversimplification that I think it loses all meaning. He says it's much more complex. And I love the example he gives. Um, yeah, he's, he talks about, you know, how the colonial elite meaning the elite that would move into the colonial uh, properties and then rule there, right, weren't allowed to do so at home. Like they weren't that level of elite. We've talked about this before in many instances when we talk about like the Mau Mau and et cetera, right, where it was sort of like the upper middle class that would go to the conquests, the colonies that had been, you know, taken over and they would rule there when they never would have been able to back in, the uh, quote unquote homeland. And so, you know, he talks about the examples of the, I mean, he says right here, right? Uh, let's see, spacious mansions and gardens filled with mimosa and bougainvillea, a large supporting cast of houseboys, grooms, gardeners, cooks, amas, maids, etc. And he goes on to talk about this example of like what it was like to be these people. And he says, uh, it's a large, largely a result of that, these white people going in to the colonial holdings and ruling there who never were able to do that before like in their home country, like that was just not even on the table, but they could easily go do that in the places that mm -hmm. their, their nation had yeah. conquered colonially. And so we can't just say it's just a result of nationalism or just a result of class or et cetera. It's, it's all of these things, you know, combined together. And the impurity part. I like that part too, that he's insinuating. Yep. Okay. So, um, in sum, what we've covered here regarding Benedict Anders, Anderson's imagined communities is a critique, or maybe not even a critique, an analysis of the origins of national consciousness, right? That's what he's after here. And to help us um, as, as, as people working in the field of the human sciences understand this um, interesting, I almost said novel, but he would maybe debate that, this interesting phenomenon. Um, mm -hmm. For, of course, our purposes here on, on, on revolution and ideology is because, of course, both myself and, and Nick find nationalism to be one of the most um, repugnant ideologies um, to come along in, in human history and the cause of much death, destruction and suffering. That right. said, Anderson doesn't concern himself as much with that as talking about like the how. Um, mm -hmm. How did it come about? Um, and a little bit of the why. So let's recap that just a little bit. Uh, first and foremost, the idea of national consciousness, even though something that might be age old, really is able to be articulated because of um, a couple of techn uh, technological inventions like the printing press, but most importantly, because of some economic evolution moving from mercantilism to capitalism and how that's promoted um, via a reflexive relationship, of course, with book publishing and printing, and it creates a national consciousness or an easily national consciousness that can be articulated via vernacular language. That's the most important part is you can now mass communicate while also, of course, creating us and them paradigms linguistically. 
The next part, of course, is its intersection with imperialism and how imperialism can be used in different ways. In one case, a reactionary imperialism by the Russians, he uses an example in the Russification of a people, even people that would not be Russian in, in, in heritage, or in the case of the British, the implementation of British ideals upon non-British citizens during their imperial reign. And of course, in Japan's case, using nationalism um, to uh, create a a understanding of 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 place and time and and what's the word I'm looking for ascendance on a global scale right basically mm-hmm. being able to hold one's own thus justifying of course the um, precedent that your nationality creates of course over others that those yep. are the examples and then finally of course patriotism and racism of how that patriotism somewhat informs the racism both internally and externally through of course ideas like nationalism internally we want to of course create this pure understanding of who the who who is part of the nation but then also as rationalization for the colonial processes that take place what do you think is that a good enough recap what do you want to chime in with how do you want it as again the sociologist to put a bow on this one I mean, it's hard to situate this work because it's not just a work of history, even though yeah. he is a historian, right? He does a lot to really talk about. I mean, I, I view it more as a work of, like, it's a combination of anthropology and sociology, really, and political science and history, yeah. like, all wrapped into one, which is why it's, I think, challenges so much of right. the way we think about, you know, the origins of nations. It's not just a book about the First Nations, not like Indigenous Nations, but you know what I mean? Yeah. The First nationalism that was born on a global scale that's only one chapter in the book right his whole thesis is about imagined communities i mean that's the title of the book and how these communities on such a large scale you know came into being through such a complex you know interworking relationships between so many things which you just explained and how you know He's even challenging the historians at the time who have the understanding that we mostly go with is like, you know, the 1600s was essentially the birth of the modern nation. And it very clearly like, you know, boom, boom, boom. It evolved like this. He's saying like, even if he agrees with that timeline, he's saying that it's much more nuanced than the way that most historians are presenting it. That we have to understand the specific ways that, you know, how does this thing that is national consciousness even come about, Right what lent itself for that being created and how did it spread and evolve from then, you know, at the level of the way that people think, not just from like the materialist materialist perspective and so forth. So, and how it presents the promise of individual liberation. If we, even if we go mm -hmm. all the way back while of course, eventually in practice providing no individual liberation. Right. It's the antithesis of that. Yeah. The antithesis uses a mechanism for control. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. Take us out, me. All right. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app. That will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.